Welcome to the Heroes of Reality podcast, a podcast about the game of life and the hero's journey we all experience. Let's jump in with our host, Dylan Watkins, as he introduces today's guest. Welcome, Young Adventures. Dylan here. And on today's episode, I interview Ebeni Carr. She began her journey as an activist for the homeless youth in high schools throughout Los Angeles and Compton. She was first an educator. And then from becoming an educator in the space, she went ahead and she opened up a school. She became the principal of that school. And through just overall active listening and creating really a deep focus with learning from the kids as the teachers or as the experts in the space, she eventually was able to craft a very powerful culture, a student-centered culture all around having young students expressing themselves in a non-judgmental way, having high standards, and then helping them and supporting them with what I would call, instead of a farm-to-table experience, but a bedroom-to-classroom deep immersed experience where she wants to actually have full control over the child's immersive experience and culture to give them the best chances to get out of the housing instability situations that they face and support them with as much love and compassion and growth as possible. She's an amazing woman who has some brilliant insights about how to really get kids to open up and express who they are and then get them to level up inside you know who they are and what they want to be so without any further ado i'm excited to share with you abaini Carr. hello hey how are you doing today i'm good how are you i'm good i'm good thanks for connecting with me i'm uh, i'm very excited to connect with you i was reading a little bit about your bio and your stories and you definitely got a hero's journey um so i'm, I'm excited to, to learn more yeah. Um, so I'd love to learn, um, you know, just could you just kind of give me just a little rundown of kind of like um, maybe like who you are and and, you know, kind of how you serve the people. OK, um, my name is Abaini and I am currently a principal. Um, I opened I helped open a charter school in Compton. Um, in 2013, um, but I originally began in education years ago. My mom was a teacher, and so yeah. I think that, you know, just in your blood, when you see somebody grading papers all the time and working with youth, and so against her, her wishes and my better judgment, I became a teacher and um, really just loved it, but I think immediately you realize, or I realized, that being a teacher wasn't enough because mm -hmm. you know you want to be able to change things and change systems and so i opened i helped open the school in 2013 and then i became the principal the very the very next year and wow. so um yeah so I, I mean it was life changing i worked in lincoln heights previously and then to come to compton is just a whole different community um but i always tell people um not to talk about like geography because kids are kids no matter where you are right like they a lot of them have the same difficulties and so most of the time when i'm talking to people i don't tell them i work in compton because there's this like perceived you know idea of who i work with <laughs> um but I've I've been in education now for a while. I've been a principal since 2014, and it brings me a lot of joy. Um, I really focus on um, student-centered 
um, schools. And I like really, I do feel like I am an expert in terms of building school culture. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of what I do is training teachers to understand they are not to be like the authoritative voice, but you know, we learn from our students and our students learn from us. So much like what Bell Hooks talks about, like um, that we have to be in tune with each other and that learning is, is a shared experience. I really do a lot of my teacher training based on that. And um, yeah, like I, I really, even in this pandemic, you know, we're learning from our students, we're learning from our families and we're changing our systems, I think, one of the biggest reasons I wanted to become a principal is you see how many um, black and brown kids are suspended, ex expelled, sent out of classes. And then those are the same students who are not graduating. And so I really work hard to figure out how do we change that? How okay. Do we make them successful? So all awesome. I got a lot of impact. I got a lot to talk to you about. And this is, you said a lot of really, really interesting things inside there. So uh, great job. Um, so, <laughs> On, on that note, okay, a couple things. One, uh, student-centered. Can you talk to me a little bit about what student-centered means to you? Yeah, um, for sure. So student-centered really means um, letting the students have an active voice in planning uh, mm -hmm. and change in the school. So really, um, I always make it a point to survey students. Um, I always make it a point for them to create events. Um, we always usually have like a student leadership team. And so really, I think that as adults, we try to take over a lot of things and we don't hear their voices or we'll ask them, what do you want to do? But then we carry it out, you know? And so I think that there's a lot to be said for turning that around, flipping that model around and having students a lot more involved. Um, the same thing happens in the classroom. You know, I ask my teachers not to talk too much. You know, as a teacher, teachers sometimes want to talk for like 30, 40 minutes. I am bored. I have checked out. And so we really talk about how do you incorporate students into your lessons? So allowing them to teach lessons and things of that nature, like that's what makes it student-centered. Or even them giving us input on how to do discipline, you know? It's not an easy process, but um, really when they feel like, hey, I have buy-in or my word is important, they're more likely to go along with your school culture. Yeah, 100%. Uh, <laughs> there's like, okay, so, you know, part of the ways that get people engaged is autonomy. It's one of the things that we value more than anything. And we also, Mm -hmm. We respond. We don't, one of those things I always think of people say, it might butcher it somewhat, is that we don't, we don't act the way that we think we should act. We act the way we think other people think we should act. And so if you empower a kid to say, hey, look, I tell you what, you're an adult, you're responsible, you make decisions. I'm putting my trust, my faith, my belief in you. And you back that up not only with words, but with action. That right there is the powerful thing where kids know kids, students, young adults, whatever it is, you treat me a certain way, I will respond a certain way. It might take a little bit of time to kind of get that engine, that belief mechanism to move. But once you start doing that, then they feel so much more empowered and they don't, they don't just shut down like automatons, like someone at like the, I don't know, checkout stand at the grocery store that are just, just doing the job versus. In, yeah. Yeah. I call, I call them real life NPCs, non-player care characters. Right. They're just waiting for, waiting for a team to go versus literally being engaged and feeling like they have an impact and an effect on what they're doing. And so that's, that's a beautiful tenant. Is, is that one of the things like you're talking about an expert in creating student culture? Is that like the core piece? Are there other pieces around the core, the core cultures of, of, of creating a, 
a, a school plus environment? What does that look like? Yeah, for sure. I think um, right now I'm in the process of um, creating my own school. And so we are taking a lot of different pieces that we've been doing for six years that's been working and we're bringing that into the school. And so I think one of the first things, um, I'm in my doctoral program at Pepperdine and you know, I'm just doing a lot of research on, you know, how do you make students successful? You know, and I think that there has to be love there. Students are the best um, barometers. They can tell immediately if you care or if you're just here for a job, if you're being disingenuous. And so, um, you know, I think one of the things that I'm trying to master now, now that I, you know, with my family is time, you know, a lot of times I pour a lot of love into my students by being there before school, during school, and then after school hours, you know, um, and so that lets them know, oh, this isn't just a check-in and check-out job, right, and then I think another part is building trust, and I think that is probably the hardest part, um, because at our school specifically, we focus on, you know, we're family while you're here, you know, and the reason why we pick the family aspect to focus on with our students is we all have family that like, I probably don't like, I may only see them on the holidays. And um, sometimes we have some pretty intense conversations, but at the end of the day, it's all love, right? Like, yeah. I still want to get to a place where we're good. And so we really function on that as like, hey, we're a family. And I will tell you, I've worked with kids who have been incarcerated, who have separation issues with their own biological families. And it takes a lot of work. One of the first things we do when we bring students in is have an orientation. And we ask them to be honest, like, who are you? I don't care if you're in a gang. I don't care if you've done drugs. I don't care you know, if you've been trafficked. I want that information to figure out how to support you. You know, and I think um, one of the things that always just blows my mind or, you know, counselors and teachers always tell me is like, I can't believe that kid sat down with you for 45 minutes and told you all of that, you know, and a lot of times it's just because they feel loved in the room and they feel like they can trust you and they know that you're not going to take that information and throw it in their face or, you know, put it, bring it up at a, at a really bad time. Um, they know that, you know, I'm not looking from a deficit lens of like, oh, this child really went through that. Like, let's talk about it five times, you know? Mm -hmm. We give them the support that they need. So if you need a therapist, if you need a case manager, then let's, you know, put you with that person. Um, and then, you know, after that, we just work with them on like, here's an expectation. And so I think beyond making it student-centered, we just focus on love, trust, high expectations and high standards um, and really just working on being resourceful with kids, you know, of, hey, this is what you need. And then I think the other thing is reciprocity. You know, there's, there are times where I have to learn how to humble myself. And there's times where I, t you know, would tell a student like, I'm sorry, I made a mistake, you know, um, or just listening to them. And so there's so many things I've learned from my students, you know, in the 10 years I've been in education. And so, reciprocity is not just you giving them something or you going, you know, having a lesson with them or talking to them outside of class. It's really also learning from them and thanking them when you've gotten something from them, right? Mm. Um, and so I feel like kids are very receptive to that, the students we've mm. worked with. Um, and so a lot of what we're doing in terms of culture building and planning to open the school is based off of those tenants. Mm. That's fantastic. Um, I, by the way, see me glance this way. It sees them taking notes. I took a job. I was, I, was like, I was like, listen, good conversation. Got to grab my notebook. Hold on. I'll be back. All right, I'm back. So, so a couple of things here that I think was super dope that I kind of want to kind of go backwards and unpack and then maybe I have a question for you about this too. Uh, a thing to ponder on these topics is, so 
it seems like a couple of things that you do around the areas of building culture, which is a very difficult challenge things because culture is kind of what happens when you're making plans. You know, it's like, it's like kind of, it actively, it, it, it naturally forms around you. It's the unspoken truth. Like you might have rules, but that's not a culture. Like, you know right. what I'm saying? And so, um, but starting with first, because I was going to first ask you, because you talked about, you know, it's all about building trust. And I was gonna, my, my next question was going to be about, well, how do you build trust? Um, but then coming from the things, what it sounds like you do um, is around self-expression. I want you to be completely authentic. Uh, first, I want you to be completely autonomous, right? And, and I want you to kind of speak your mind. Then I want you to be radically self-expressive. Where you And the only way to be radically self-expressive is by removing all threats of judgment and then being able to remove all threats of judgment and self-expression. And then I was like, okay, well, then after that, then you hold them to a high standard. And then, you, but you can't, in order, in order to know, you need to know who they are. And then you need to know, basically, they need to know that they're safe enough to, to speak their mind. And then going from that, then you can say, great, this is who you are. This is where you're at. Do you believe I'm going to help you? Great. If you want me to help you, here's my level of expectations for you need to show up. And this, is the, and this means that they now need to be engaged because they're being autonomous. It's their choice. And they're free. And they can say, okay, I want to get there. And I have to be honest with where I'm at. And so it seems like that's kind of what you're doing is you're getting them to open up in a safe place, then plat that map, and then give them their own autonomy to take the steps, even though they might fuck up to get to where they need to go something like that yeah i'm gonna have you write my thesis yes that's exactly <laughs> <what it> is. <laughs> go back you go no things i think it's beautiful and it's powerful and it's one of those things that's much easier said than done one of the questions i had around this one that was the top of mind after you answered my first three questions was really around the thing of how do you how do you project vulnerability while still remaining as a, an authority figure that they respect Right. How do you how do you how do you be that both on the same level and also someone they respect at the same time? Yeah, I don't think um, I don't do it all all right all the time. So I always want to preface conversations with that. You know, you hear these stories, you're like, that's great. It's not always like that. Sometimes we do miss the mark. Um, mm. Something that I train my teachers on in terms of being vulnerable is that um, I don't need you to take up the room. OK, and so I do tell them, make yourself your human. Right. Because mm. whether we always have to acknowledge our, our privilege, right? If I'm in a room of parents, they already think a lot of times because I have certain level of degrees, which they perceive, they may not even know, they're not gonna be open to talking to me about what's going on with them, right? Um, and so some of the first things I talk to parents about is like, I'm a mom, you know? I, you know, so I know what, what seat you're in, or I've worked with this many students before in the past. And that's really just to kind of let them know it's not, again, it's not a place of judgment. So I want you to know you can be vulnerable. And I found that I have to do the same thing with my students. You know, um, I went to a private school in Pasadena for high school. And so um, I cannot say to my students, like, I know what you're going through, like, because we didn't have the same shared experience, right? But I did go to a small school and there were things that I didn't tell teachers and there were stuff that I hid from staff and, you know, school staff and teachers. And I wish that I had somebody who would have been there for me. And so a lot of times when I'm talking to students, I think whether they're mad and they're coming to my office because they're in trouble or because they're in terror, you know, of something that's going on at home, which happens a lot of the time. You know, one of the first things I do is I greet at the front door whenever we're in school. Right now we're not. Um, but I greet at the front door because a lot of times, you know, students are triggered by what's going on outside of 
the outside of school, you know, it's at home. And so if I see a student's having a bad day, like at 7.30 in the morning, I'm not gonna go send them into a class, right? Um, I, I have a small school, so I kind of have that autonomy to do that. Um, but I may partner them with a therapist or a case manager. I pull them into my office and I say, you know, what's wrong? Um, if a student's getting in trouble with the teacher, when they come to my office, I'm not immediately like, what did you do? Or this is what your teacher said. You know, I, I have made it a point to always say, hey, are you ready to talk or do you need a few minutes? And my students know, I really truly mean that. If you need to color, if they need to listen to headphones because they've dealt with anger management and that's what's gonna bring them down. Like, I need to hear this song right now because that's gonna calm me down. You know, I allow for that. Um, sometimes I tell them, don't come into my office if you're gonna still be yelling and being mad. Because a lot of times what happens in schools is a student sent out, they've already upset the teacher, and now they're going off on whoever the new authority figure is, right? And then that gets them in a lot more trouble, which really isn't fair because as adults, we don't really even process our emotions, you know, that well. But now I'm asking a teenager, right, who's going through a bunch of stuff, I need you to process and then, you know, get this feedback and be reflective. Like, it's not going to happen. And so I think a lot of times it's amazing to see for my students, I, I would say probably 75% of the time, they are able to take that time, reflect, come into my office and say, miss, I'm ready to talk now. And then we're able to walk through it. Um, and then there's that other portion of kids who are like, nope, I'm mad. I don't want to talk about it. And so sometimes we will send them home and we will say like, you know what, I need you to go home, reflect on this. And then when you're ready to come back, then we'll talk about this. And we do. And I think that that allows them to be vulnerable. It's okay, you know, when they're ready to have that reflective space to say, you know what, I did mess up, you know? And I think that the other way to make people vulnerable is when I'm talking to my students, you know, I admit to them when I've had faults, you know? And I think that kids think a lot of the times that we're perfect or that we didn't make these mistakes. And so we're putting that pressure on them. And so I, I will tell you myself, my dean, my teachers, I ask them to really be human, right? Tell a student, you know, mistakes that you've made because they feel like you're putting all this pressure on them that, that you expect them to be at this level and that they never think that you've ever been there before, you know? And so I do think that that's a lot um, that we need to make sure that we're unpacking what our expectations mm -hmm. and where those are coming from with kids. And then um, with all of my teachers, I always do every beginning of the year, I always do this exercise that says like, who were you as a high school student? And so my teachers have to bring in a picture of themselves when they were in high school, which is funny to see who people were when they were in high school. Um, but then we really do, it's about an hour and a half long exercise where we ask them like, who were you? You know, what were you going through? Um, wh what were your parents and your family life? And then what did you wish your staff, your teachers knew about you? And it's so interesting because I will tell you probably 90% of the time I've done that exercise, the child that they are picking on the most is who they were when they were in high school, right? And so uh, we do those trainings really to get them into that vulnerable place of understanding like, okay, just like you need to unpack, students do too. That's so good. Uh, so, I mean, one is the, the ultimate form of empathy creation and, uh, and really, you notice that the, the the harshest person we ever are, are to ourselves or the people that we see the most in and that we can't stand ourselves. And so we project that anger onto other people with because we have a lack of self-acceptance, which is a big challenge for every every human out there. Uh, yeah. And and I think what's really, really cool about that is the fact that like 
having them connect with one themselves and then, and then that self-reflection. And you still keep, you, you do that uh, autonomy thing quite a bit, which I think is beautiful. It's like, hey, are you ready to talk? Yes or no. You don't force the hand because then you still have that ego in the way. Like that, some, they have to like, they have to let the ego go in order to step forward, which means they're now ready. And so, and maybe they're not ready, but that's the whole point of autonomy is you can't, you can't force it. You can't, you can't, the thing about being a hero. And so one of my big things is I'm a big Joseph Campbell fan. I don't know if about Joseph Campbell, the hero's journey. If you heard about him all? No, tell me about it. Uh, I will, I will. Yes, I'm more than happy to. So <laughs> I'll, I'm gonna tell you about it. Um, and it, we'll, we'll, we'll tie into what this whole thing's about. So, and this what this, a lot of this podcast is based on. Joseph Campbell's one of the guys I've looked up to the most. Um, and what he did is he was fascinated with all the cultures, myths, and religions from around the world. This dude was like in the 1950s and he first went to like Native American tribes and then he went over to like Southeast Asia and then he, he basically went everywhere. He documented the, the religions, the myths, the cultures, all this stuff. And then he realized that there was a pattern. There was a, a, a pattern of all the stories and all the myths that he dubbed the monomyth. And the monomyth is also known as the hero's journey. And so that is something that Hollywood, like Walt Disney and all these other cats figured out. And they said, you know what? That sounds like an amazing way to tell stories. And so that's what every Disney movie, Harry Potter, The Lord of the Rings, all that stuff is based on. And, and it goes something along the lines of this is there's a young ordinary person. And for some reason they have to leave their community and set off on an adventure for some sort of holy grail. They, they fight threshold guardians, they do battle, they probably get their butt kicked. And along the way, they find a mentor, a guide, someone who gives them a magic spell book, a, a special sword, some sort of thing to do battles. They fight more and more threshold guardians along the way, uh, known as like the, the Trail of Tears or Trail of Sorrow. Um, and along that path, it's like a montage in a movie, uh, they go along to fight the dragon. They come on the dragon, they almost die. By almost dying, they have to let go of something, an ego or something. They're reborn as a new character. They defeat the dragon, they get the Holy Grail, but the Holy Grail is more not so much the thing they're getting, but who they became for the journey to return back home with the Holy Grail and then to thus become a mentor to be of service to other people, other young heroes that are on that path, right? And that's the story of human growth. It's the story of yeah. human evolution, of, of being something more and becoming something more because of extraordinary circumstances. Um, and, and a lot of those things with the hero is that they have to take the bold step. They, they can't just like, you can't force someone to become a hero, right? You can't be like, go fight that monster. It ultimately has to be their choice. Otherwise you are literally the villain. Like a, a, a hero and a villain both have great power. A hero serves the people while a villain serves themselves. And that's the, the literal definition between the two. And all, ultimately heroes have, they, they, they command autonomous people that, that want to work with them, right? And so um, that's why you keep going back to autonomy high standards, all these things. And in my mind, I think of like hero journey framework and you're like, you know, and to me, you strike someone that you've been on your own journey and you're now in the mentor space where you've created a sanctuary where you're helping young, young people who are ordinary to become extraordinary by helping them reflect on who they could be if only they were taking the step forward. So. Yeah, that's very interesting. I've never, I've never heard of it. However, it very much reminds me of you know, why I started my nonprofit, you know, and so I, I definitely see that, that arc as well. Could, could you talk to me a little bit about why you started your nonprofit? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I started a nonprofit last year called Haven's House, mm -hmm. and um, really, 
it starts a very long journey, but um, I was adopted when I was three by my mom and my mm. dad. And mm. um, my mother was adopted. My grandfather was adopted. So it's kind of like a, a thing in our family. And when I turned 28, I had talked to my mom um, about finding my birth parents. And mm. I think when we first started the conversation, it was like, okay, whatever, sure. Um, and it was like this thing, but it was just kind of out there. And um, the year that I was going to turn 30, I was at work with um, my boss, my CEO of my, of my current school. And he was like, the, I, we were going around asking questions and I was talking about how much I love family trees. And so he was like, oh, I have ancestry.com. And I was just kind of telling him about how I was adopted. He, he also adopted his daughter and he was like, oh, I found her birth parents. Maybe I can help you find yours. And it was just kind of like a whatever. And um, he said, well, do you have any information? And I was like, actually I do. And um, I had some very little information um, from adoption paperwork. And really when I had decided to start looking for my birth parents, I had joined a support uh, adoption support group. And it was probably one of the most depressing things I've ever been through in my life because everybody was like talking about like their failed reunions. And so some of them were like, I met my birth parents and they didn't want to see me. And some people, um, I think a lady had, her birth parents had just passed away two years before. And so um, I tend to be like on the like positive energy side of things. And so I, you know, in my head, I'm like, well, these are possibilities. Like we know this, if we're going to go find our birth parents. Right. And so I kind of originally like let it go because I didn't want to become one of those people. Right. Who was like very sad about um, maybe the possibility of reuniting and it not being what I wanted it to be. And mm -hmm. so I gave my boss a little bit of information. And then like an hour later, he came down and he was like, I think I found her information, but I'm not sure. And so I really, I was going to turn 30 that year. And I really just started like chronicling it, you know, like, okay, this is the information I found. And then I had lots of other friends who started to say, you know, I'm off today. I'm going to start looking up your birth mother too. And I was like, okay. And so um, we found her name. We found out where she lived, but we couldn't find an active number. And it wasn't until um, December of, uh, of that year. So that was originally in July. It wasn't until December and I was on Christmas break. And I said, I'm going to give it one last try to find my birth mother. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't. And so um, under wherever her name was, there's always this emergency contact that was listed. And so I reached out to him on Facebook and I said, I know this is going to sound like totally out of left field, but you know, this is my name. This was my biological name when I was born. Um, and it keeps saying that, you know, my birth mother. And I just wanted to know if you did. And within six hours, he found me and he said, yes, I do know your birth mother. She's been looking for you for years. Um, she would love to meet you. Is it okay? And I was like, uh, okay. And so I went to meet her and it was a very surreal experience. I, I took my adopted mom with me and we met her and it was um, very life-changing. And at that point, she told me that she had had another daughter named Miracle and so she asked me if I wanted to meet her. And I said, yes. And at that time, Miracle lived in Texas. And so I didn't meet Miracle until January. But um, when I met her, <laughs> we met at a McDonald's and she was with this gentleman. And um, every single time I would ask her a question, he would be answering. And I'm like, who is this? Like, what is happening? Um, and so it wasn't until like later on that afternoon that I found out that you know, my sister was being trafficked and that that's the life that she had been in for over three years at 17. Um, and so I connected with her again and I said, you know, 
I would do anything to help you get out of this situation. Um, and, you know, she was just very like, I can't. And, you know, I had no idea about what that life even entailed, you know? And so I brainstormed with my birth mother. We got her to run away. Um, we put her in hiding for a little bit um, with me and with my birth mother. And then um, we, be we begged her to stay here. And I think that I just wanted to help her. And so I was like, I'm gonna help you get a high school diploma. I'm gonna get you out of this situation. And I thought I was gonna do all these amazing things. And then I realized like the system is not set up for immediate support. You know, it took forever to get her a case manager. We couldn't get her into a shelter. She didn't have transcripts. And so I started to realize like, well, what is somebody like my sister supposed to do? You know, if we are trying to get her out of this. And a lot of why she, why she was in that lifestyle is because she didn't have any supports. So it's very easy for her to return back to that, right? And so I realized quickly that like, wow, in order for her to get placed, my sister didn't get placed into a shelter for until two months. Um, and so, you know, I was keeping her, I was paying for hotels and things like that. And so we got her into school and, you know, hindsight, right? Like looking back, I probably shouldn't have worried about getting her in school. I should have put her in therapy, you know, um, because it's very, it's cyclical. Like she wanted to go back to that because she kept craving money and things like that. Um, she ended up graduating from high school. We had her in a shelter for a while and it really seeing my sister really made me think like, do I have students like this that I don't acknowledge because I don't know, you know, no students are coming in and saying, this is what I'm going through, you know? Um, and so I really started to investigate my student population that I work with. And I was realizing we had so many kids that were homeless and nobody, you know, I, it's a question on their registration form, but nobody's going to say, yes, I'm homeless. Right. And for some people you have to define what is homeless. You know, if you're living on somebody's couch, if you're living in shelters, if you stay with your aunt, you know, you're dealing with housing instability. And so I really work with my school to change the language. Like we, this is how we need to ask, you know, if they're, if they're experiencing housing instability and this is how we're going to help or, or reach out or identify young people that are going through trafficking, not just girls. There's a lot of young men that are also being trafficked as well, right? And so I started working with um, the sheriff department and asking like for all this information and literature, I had no idea in front of our faces sometimes there are young people that are being trafficked. I'm thinking they're just walking down the street or waiting at, at a bus stop for a bus and that's not necessarily the case. And so it, it created all these things. And, and although I love being a principal where I'm at, um, I know that I wanted to create a safe space for young people like my sister Miracle. And so mm -hmm. really that's how Haven's House came about. Um, we basically are working on creating three different um, systems of care for young people that are dealing with housing instability. So we are working on creating a shelter um, we are working on creating a school um, and specifically we want to create a school to be open to anybody. However, we want to have training curriculum teachers that are aware of who are, our young people are who are the most vulnerable and how to support them. I think that when you look at the, the huge number of young people that um, are homeless in LA County right now, um, that we have not found an answer for how to support them. And really that means that we're gonna to have to change a system, not asking them to change with the system, right? And so we really wanna create a school that meets the needs of you know, our transient students who are you know, mobile. And then using those tenets of trust and love and reciprocity, having them find a safe place where they know they can always come back to.
Mm. And then the third one that we do is just outreach. We're doing outreach and giving out food. We give hygiene packets. Um, we've gotten donations from women with purses and we put hygiene packets in there. Um, we get like bags for them as well. And we put like different clothes and food and stuff like that for young people through our outreach program. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's incredible. Um, okay. So uh, a lot of amazing stuff. I, some clarity, then more questions and things like that. And just because it's the first time I've heard the terminology, when you say trafficking, is that is that around sexual trafficking? Is that what you mean by that? Or is that, yeah? Yeah, it used to be called prostitution. And, and when we realized like um, some, yes, some people do do sex work, right? There are sure. adults who are consenting for sex work. Um, but when you're talking about a child, it's not prostitution, you know? And I think the story of Santoya Brown really brought up a lot of different, you know, conversations about like, this is a child and, you know, can a child give consent when they're doing that? Um, and there's just so many ways that young people are coerced into doing it. Uh -huh. um, and so recently and in, in recent, um, the last four years, we've, we, it's been changed where we're not, you know, saying that young uh, people are, are prostituting, right? Like they are being trafficked, especially sure, in terms sure. of the way that they're being coerced into it, not even knowing a lot of times that that's what's happening. Got it. And you're and you're talking about the the case with Santoya Brown. Was that was that because I'm not I'm, I'm not familiar. I'm, I'm not. Oh, oh, oh not, yes. So Santoya Brown was um, I believe she was 16 um, when she was picked up by um, somebody who was trying to hire her for work. Um, at the time, she was being pimped by her boyfriend, and um, she killed the man. And so there was um, Sheena Bean at 16 found guilty for murder and was put on um, getting life in prison. And so a lot of people really did uh, a lot of work to say, first of all, um, people looked at her as like this cold hearted prostitute who probably just wanted to steal money from him. And that's why she was found guilty as compared to the fact that she had this traumatic background. She was um, being trafficked at the time and there is real fears, right? Like regardless of if she had done robbery before and theft and all these other, you know, whatever her background is, some of that comes with being trafficked, right? That's the mm -hmm. mindset. That's how they're coerced. And so um, she ended up being released. It took a very long time and it took a lot of petitioners, um, but it really did start to change the way that we talk about young people who are being trafficked, right? Like, mm. I can tell you for a fact, every young person I have dealt with who's been um, trafficked has, does have some kind of, um, like, you know, they've been jailed at some, incarcerated at some point, right? And a lot of times it's because they're doing it for survival. So if I am trying to find somewhere to sleep, yes, I may go steal something, you know? Um, yes, I'm going to go break into somewhere to go sleep. Yes, I'm going to do whatever, you know, this, this pimp is telling me to do. Or uh, a lot of times, like, they'll still refer to him as boyfriend, right? Even though that's not your boyfriend, that's not a relationship. Um, but that's how it's built, you know? And so a lot of times these men, they groom um, young people. And again, I, I want to be very clear because it's, it's young boys and young girls that are experiencing this, um, but a lot of times they'll groom them. They'll find somebody who um, needs attention, wants attention. They'll give them compliments. They'll buy them things, um, usually a phone. Um, usually they'll buy them stuff of, of how they want them to appear. Um, and then they'll start, you know, kind of causing them to separate from their lifelines, you yeah, know, yeah. whether it's family and friends and start hanging out with them or answer them whenever they want. And then they start to groom them into the lifestyle that they want them to be a part of. Got it. Yeah. Okay. With, 
in those types of situations, and you were talking about the three levels, shelter, school, and outreach, though, um, from a psychological mindset perspective of these people that are being trafficked, um, you know, what is the, what is the understanding of where they're at and what's the, cause they, they have a certain mind, a certain story, a certain pattern of behavior. And you're talking about, they, they keep going back through that lifestyle because without the proper support structure, what is the, what is the, where are they currently at in that? And then what is the realization? Like, what, do, how do they get to the next things where they can actually break free of that pattern? What do they have to understand? What are the beliefs that have to be established? What are, what are, around, what are the storylines behind that? Yeah, I think um, that's a great question. Um, I, the reason why I wanted to create Haven's House is because, um, like I said, when I met my sister, my sister had been trafficked and been going through that for three years. Um, yeah. And um, to be very clear, you know, my birth mother had went through it as well, right? So it is, mm. um, it's deep rooted. It's, you know, yeah. and so um, when I helped her, it was like, let's get you a high school diploma because that's, you know, that's what I was about as an educator of like, if we get you to college, we'll get you out of cyclical poverty and then life will be great. Um, and the reality is like, no, it's not. Um, and really I didn't identify why she was doing this. You know, I'm not a specialist. I'm not a psychologist. I wish I had teamed with somebody who was right. Mm -hmm. And so the reasons why we wanted to create these three systems of care for youth that are experiencing homelessness, but also, um, traffic is because sometimes when you do an intake, you'll be able to decide whether this child is ready to do school or whether they need mental health support. And yeah. I really do, I work with mental health professionals now. We, we want to have mental health professionals as part of the school culture, right? So when we do an intake, that mental health expert's gonna tell us, hey, are they ready to do school or not, right? Yeah. Um, and so the whole idea of having the shelter as part of it is because if they are not ready for, for school, then there's gonna be a component where they can just deal with shelter and counseling as compared to coming into school. I think one of the things that I realize about young people, especially young people who are experiencing homelessness, right? Maybe they haven't gone through trafficking, but a lot of times they're making decisions based off of survival, right? And so, no, I'm not worried about writing your paper. No, I'm not worried about this math test. I'm trying to figure out how am I going to eat? You know, how am I going to clean my clothes so I don't look like I've been wearing the same clothes, right? Um, where am I going to put my clothes, right? Am I going to have lights? Am I going to have water? Um, for a lot of um, young people that are experiencing homelessness, they're taking care of their siblings, you know, or they have to go to work to support, to help their families. And so we want to have a shelter, ideally, uh, you know, goal, this is like 10-year goal. Um, we want to have a shelter that's on the same campus as the school site, right? And so the idea is, is to have them 24-7, almost like a group home model, um, mm -hmm. so that those are not stressors, right? We know, I know that I'm successful today, that I, you know, that I have my bachelor's, I have, you know, two masters, I'm getting my doctorate, you know, I'm able to take care of myself because of my adopted parents. That was something that was always instilled in me. And I had a foundation and I had a home that always told me like, hey, we got you. We'll worry about all the basic needs. We just want you to focus on this, right? Yeah. And so when I look at my sister or when I you know, realize when I'm looking at, hey, how do we get students to achievement? It's the foundational, it's Maslow's basic needs that they have to have in order to be successful. And so we wanna be able to provide that. So if that looks like, hey, you need shelter and you need water and you need clothes and you need food, we'll provide that. If it's, hey, you need counseling and then we, we can come back and decide whether you're gonna do school, then hey, you know, we can do that as well. 
Mm. I think one of my goals with my Pepperdine program is to work on policy, you know, as it relates to um, school. Right now, there's different assembly bills that protect students who've been incarcerated or um, <clears throat> have been in and out of foster care. And so they can graduate with smaller amounts of credits earlier. They can do graduate a little bit earlier because they've had so much going on. And I would like to do the same uh, eventually for youth that are experiencing homelessness and trafficking. Um, having a social worker that's assigned to them um, that works with the schools and can help them graduate a little bit faster without having to get you know, the same graduation requirements as everybody else because they have so much more going on. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that's awesome, powerful. Uh, so a couple of things with that. Um, yeah, I mean, it sounds like you're talking about Maslow hierarchy of needs, right? So you're talking about this baseline, like it, it, you're not going to worry about eating like uh, farm to table, wholly organic foods. If you, if you can't put any food in your system, you're like, I don't, I don't care what it is. I'm going to take it because I need to survive. And that, that will, you can't, you can't focus on social emotional growth or reflectiveness or being more collaborative insightfulness and meditation. If you just got to find a way to like, where am I going to sleep tonight? Which is yeah. a, a grand distraction. And so, I mean, I mean, but that's what you're talking about a support structure. It's literally supporting you up past the first phase of Maslow hierarchy of needs. And then say, okay, we got, we got you covered here. Just, just focus on this, which means I mean, you're talking about like, because you, you can't get the skill sets if you don't have the mindset. You can't have the mindset if you don't have the, the, the environmentals down, right? So you need the environmentals so that you can get your mindset right, so then you can get the skill sets right. Otherwise, it's never going to, they're never, never going to make it up that, climb that ladder. So um, I, I think that's super powerful stuff. Um, with that, you're, talk, you're talking about when I asked you last time was around kind of like, their current mindset and then what's the new mindset they need to have and i think you kind of answered that along with well that doesn't matter if they don't have a place to live and eat and sleep which com completely valid once once they kind of get that stuff the, the ground level of those things foundationally figured out with the like okay and i love the idea of like okay we got your food we got your water we got your things okay now let's like let's step in the next phase which is going to be uh working on your mindset well mindset and then working on the school stuff what about the mindset pieces do they need to understand to help them like okay if they're if their food and water is everything taken care of does that then automatically grant them access to the school or what is the what is the typical block that would keep them circling back around if it's not just the survival with food and water part yeah, it's twofold. Um, so the idea is, and I mean, we're working on this, right? Like literally yeah. writing the charter petition right now. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's twofold. It is a school that if you are enrolled and you need emergency shelter immediately, we're able to give that to them, right? Um, and yeah. it, it, it happens in, in different ways, right? Um, but the idea is, is that it's also an open shelter if there's you know, a child who does eventually wanna go to school. Um, the reason why we want them to be hand in hand is because that social emotional learning, that trauma-informed practices, that happens on both sides, right? And so having mental health infused in the school day and the after school day, and then at the actual shelter um, mm -hmm. is what we're working on. 
So Mm -hmm. mindset and, and kind of what I talked about earlier about school culture, right? You can't, you have to build trust. Okay. Like their trust is broken. Love looks very different, right? Love is very subjective. So when you're talking about, Hey, I love you. And I want to, I want to be here for you, which a lot of people want to give. Sometimes they're not ready for that. Right. Like if I have, if I've hidden being homeless, right. Because I have a fear of, I'm going to be separated from my family. I'm going to go into foster care. You know, like they're, for a lot of people, they don't disclose because they don't trust, right? They're going to be tearing, they're going to be torn apart. Um, so you have to build that, right? You have to build what is love, what is trust um, within the school, right? Um, the idea is, is to start to give them like, hey, this is the culture, this is an expectation, right? Just the same how we're all socialized, right? We Depending on what our background was, who our family was, what our culture was, what our religion is, that's how we're socialized. And so really when, when we look at students now in the school I work with, but then also with the students at the school that we build, it's really to look at them as like newborns, right? Like you have to build all those things to get to that. Um, and so the idea really behind wanting to have a school with the campus, I mean, a, a shelter with the campus is because it is very hard <laughs> to be with students in school for 40 hours a week and then send them home. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of times what happens if, if I'll give you an example of my school, if I'm saying college, 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 every mm-hmm. day while you're at my school, I'm taking you to visit colleges, it's part of our advisory program, we have college flags, that's great. But if you go home, and then your parents are telling you, no, you need to work because we need money because we're, we're about to, you know, get these lights shut off, or, you know, we don't have any food. That's two different messages that are happening to a young person, right? And so a lot of times then, what is the decision that they make? They can get accepted into college. I can can take out the obstacles and find fee waivers for college applications and for tests and things like that. I can help them apply to college. But at the end of the day, even if they say, okay, I'm gonna go to this college, what a lot of us in high schools are experiencing is that the kids don't end up going. And the reason for that is because we always go back to that survival mode, right? Am I going to leave my family out here? Am I going to go to college? And then my family's telling me that we're struggling? No, I'm not, right? And so a lot of times we're saying two different messages. And so the idea of wanting to have a shelter with the school campus is that it's one message and it's one support, right? Because that's what creates the mentality. If mm. I know that I have these therapists that are going to support me, if I have the same um, SEL, the social emotional learning that we're doing together, if I have these people at my school who know what's going on in my personal life because I'm, I'm with the shelter, I am, I am more likely to feel safe, to be okay with being vulnerable and to feel loved, right? Because all of these people holistically are supporting me. Um, mm. And so that's why we're trying to build those foundations. So I think the mindset is, it is twofold, it's to go together, right? So even when they Mm -hmm. have um, at the shelter, that staff is fully aware of what's going on with them at school. Um, Mm -hmm. And it goes back to some of the practices we're doing now. Like I'm not telling a kid to go into a classroom and just focus on school. If they are having a bad day, I'm actually gonna pull them out of the class because chances are they're gonna go off on the teacher and get written up and get sent out, right? And so again, we're missing what is the important part. Um, I think that when we say to kids, hey, we want you to, to graduate and go to college, that's a mindset. That's, that's a philosophy that we have, right? That we're mm-hmm. coming from. We have to get them to that. But if they have 
um, if they're in survival mode, if they feel like they're going to return back to, you know, whatever cyclically going on at home, they're not going to ever really truly adopt, right? They're just trying to assimilate while they're with you for those 40 hours and just trying to, you know, just trying to go by whatever you want them to do. That's a, that's, that's, that's awesome. I mean, a lot of, a lot of thoughts on that. Um, one, it sounds like kind of a cultural immersion kind of thing. Yeah. And so it's, it's, a. Uh, lack of a better term is going to, I think of like farm to table is you're doing a complete vertical integration of the child's life. So, you know, bedroom to classroom kind of thing. And, and, and that ability to, 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 because it's one thing like, if you, if if I only tell you like one positive thing for one minute out of the day, it's, it's not, it's not the same thing as like, they're literally immersing them in the entire culture from start to finish to like, if you can, if you can get a kid to basically book in their day, like I start up and do a certain routine. Like, as we know, it's a, I don't know, green drink, meditations, journaling, all the typical things. And then at the end of the night, you're doing prayers and meditations and things like that. And then you can control the flow in between that. You're basically, you can, you can reset their lives if you have it for enough, you know, you, you, a couple of, just a couple of months like that, um, where you're in a supportive structure and you have an ecosystem. It is, it is a bit cultish. I will say that, but it's a very positive environment. It, it is. You are bringing them inside this environment, and you're basically removing it. It's a positive. Again, the I know words have a lot of power here, and like when you're talking about housing instability, it felt way better to me. And when you say homeless, right? It's like there's a a completely different vibe, and we we're very judgy here. And well, I'm in Orange County. I'm currently in New Orleans. Um, it's a different, different uh, type no, of. Uh, that's my brother yes. there. Your brother's in New Orleans. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's an amazing yeah, culture, and they're, and they're yeah, yeah. they're super supportive here, and they're very much like I saw like all this beauty, but then I saw the sadness, but I felt this weird camaraderie, and I was like, why am I feeling this? And they said, man, if if you survive Katrina, we're all family, and they have this like shared. Collective, like, like we're on the well, same to that, team. To that exact same point, right? My brother's a California boy, you know, mm, and yeah. he lives in New Orleans. He went to college at Dillard. He is there. He is culturally immersed, right? Uh, like when he comes home, he feels like out of place, you know. And if he comes home to visit, <laughs> because that has become his culture, and he went to college there. So I know when you said cultish, I'm like, no, not really. My brother went to college. And he he became part of New Orleans cult, culture, right? Like when he comes home to California, he got he has a whole accent. I'm like, who is this? Ah. You know, like my brother <laughs> looks like a trans. You know, he looks like a transplant coming to California, right? But it's you know, he and I make a joke about. Um, you could tell when you are in New Orleans and compared to when you're in California, mm. and you could do that based off being on an airplane. Okay. Once you are in New Orleans, you know, when you're everybody's saying, hi, how are you? Yes, ma'am. No, sir. It's beautiful, right? Everybody's yeah. letting you go by. It's, it's, yes. it's the kindest spirit. And then the second I land at LAX, everybody's getting up. They're walking past you. You're getting hit by bags. Nobody can wait for the plane to just, you know, land. Everybody's like trying to get up and rush past you. Um, you know, they're walking to the doors, the doors closing in front of you. So we always make that joke of like, it's just culture, right? And, and it, it's in all kinds of different ways, but it's these, these acceptances and culture. And so the same thing in terms of what the school idea is, right? Like I have a culture as being an adopted child. I have a culture mm -hmm. as what the expectations of my family, you know, my car family, we have traditions, yeah. we have 
jokes, we have, you know, just ideas that are part of our, our culture, right? Um, and the same thing geographically, you know, if you're in California compared to New Orleans, I know that if I'm in the South, because my dad's from Mississippi, I'm saying yes, ma'am, no, sir. Now, if I'm here in California, no, I might not always say that, right? But it's a reminder. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely a reminder, right? And so um, the same thing, that's that's why we want to definitely create the school is because it's not about like, I want you to go to college, right? Um, so that's not what it is either. It really is them being able to have that autonomy to choose what they want. It's taking them out of the areas where, hey, I can't focus on school, right? When we talk about student achievement and when we look at just even with COVID, I, I haven't even looked at those statistics yet, yeah. but pre-COVID, we're looking at the expansive number of young people that are experiencing homelessness. And I, mm. I am very, very, very purposeful in saying um, young people who are experiencing housing instability. Um, and the reason for that is because they are not a victim of, and it's not the only thing that ever describes them when you say like a homeless child, like that's not how we describe them, right? Just the same, we also always wanna let them know that like that doesn't define you. So a lot of times, yeah you know, we don't do those things up. And that's why we do say a child is experiencing homelessness because that can be temporary. That is not permanent. That is not their name, right? Um, it, that our idea is, is to make sure that it is temporary and to help them out of that. Well, yeah, you're, you're describing a condition, not a character trait, you know, like, like you're, it's like, you're like, I am, I am not a homeless person. I have housing instability right now. It's like, I am not dumb. What I did was a dumb thing. And it's just that being able to separate your, your identity from the current situation you find yourself under is, is a powerful thing. And, and you're basically pulling them out of that gravity well of, uh, as New Orleans call it, you know, crabs in a bucket, you know, pulling you back down into the environment, yeah. right? And that, and that is totally, totally true. And like, I'm, <clears throat> it's funny because, you know, one of the reasons I'm out here is I'm, I'm doing social emotional learning, a VR project for a, a local group. And every single one of the kids were like, why are you here? And they're like, I need a job. I need a job. I need to get money. I need to get out of here. I need to get my thing going. Let's yeah. go. And they don't always make it through the entire program because once they get up and going, as soon as they can find a way to get a job, they're like, later. And that's what they, they just, they just need opportunity. Right. And, and, and that just providing that opportunity to them and like, and, and part of its mindset and part of its skill set, and, and a lot of it is getting them out of that environment and bringing them to a place that actually encourages them to be able to pursue that and not just people pulling them back down. So, I mean, what I love about that is I've never heard of a, you know, this is kind of like they show up, they, they, you know, they go for a couple of hours, like 10 to two or whatever, and they do it for, you know, a number of weeks and then they go about their business, but they still have home drama, home issues, things like that, that, you know, you, there's no control. Like they're, they're gone. Yep. They do their thing. And if they can survive, if they can just find a way back to the program, then they're going to make it. But if you, if you get like trapped in and you're like, Hey, you're now welcome to boot camp, you know, but boot camp for your life, you know, that, that's so much more, it, it, it's, it, you, you, you get, the, the culture will carry you like a wave through the whole thing. So that's why I like bedroom, the classroom kind of concept there of what you're doing. And I think that I, I would be very curious to see the like success rates um, of, of a total immersion environmental thing like that versus like, you know, yeah. a weekend warrior kind of thing going in and going out on your Absolutely. classroom thing. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, there's a school that, that they're trying to create right now um, done by the Seed Foundation, which is going to be like um, a Monday through Friday model. Um, oh. And so they're going to be taking um, same, pretty, pretty similar demographics in terms of students, um, but they're taking them from different areas 
boarding them Monday through Friday and then sending them home on the weekends, right? Um, and so even in that, I don't think that's a competition. I think there's so many students to serve, but I do think <laughs> it'd be very interesting to see what yeah. the two models do provide, right? Um, because it, it, is a, it is a difference. You know, I don't, I don't mind the competition when it's like, it's like, okay, I tell it, you help as many people as you can have. It's not like you're going to, you're going to run out of children that got issues that need help. I mean, as much as I'd like to say, we're going to fix them all. Like, it's just like, it's, a, it, it, it's a, it, endless opportunities to help people get better. And if we could, you know, one of the things is, and I, I don't uh, many people have said this, so this isn't the original, but if we could just find a way to fix our own bullshit in the in the most struggling areas because it's just struggling areas if you could fix those struggling areas with with these types of models or any types of models it's like everybody would get better you know it's just it's it's there's the, ample the opportunity issue, to help people yeah but the issue is the same thing I, I you know i started off talking about is that you have these people who are not part of these systems building systems and not getting any input or very little input or carrying, you know, the people who are carrying it out are not the ones that are impacted by it, right? And so even in Buildings Haven's house, it was, let's get out there. Let's talk to the students who are experiencing this. What do you need? What do you wish that you had, right? How do we quasi provide them right now, currently, right? Like that's what our outreach unit is doing. Um, and so the idea is, is like, it's not building a system off of like, oh, I think, right? Like this has not been my experience, right? But I have to go to the experts. And a lot of times people perceive the people who have the money, who have the education or the experts. No, yes, we have resources and tools, but the experts are the people who are experiencing it. And they, those are the ones who should be building the systems. I am 100% on all of that stuff. I mean, what, you got, what we call that in the development space is the HIPPO problem, right? The, the opinion of the highest paid person in the room, right? And that's like, oh, yeah. well, they, have, they have all the money. They must know what's right. And it's like, at the end of the day, like anytime you build and create anything it, it, from a from a chocolate bar to you know Walt Disney World or whatever it is it's like unless you're really unless you're really tasting it and having them taste it and giving that samples and being like what do you think is this going to work for you do you really like this and then being able to give that room of like look i have no opinions crap all over this thing as much as you want because here's the goal is it serving you? If it's not serving you, like at the end of the day, people get so lost in their own ego of like, oh, I have this bright, shiny idea that they lose the purpose. The purpose of even like, whether it's a nonprofit or it's an entrepreneur, either way, they're of service to the people. If you're not serving the people at the end of the day, then you're just, it's mostly just stroking your own ego and just saying like, I have the best idea. But you, if you don't get a feel from the people, it's never, never going to be as good. And so I completely agree with you. And it's just, it's just, how do you get them to be honest and not the thing where they come up and go, mm, that's great. And they walk away going, Ugh, so gross. Right. Because that's a, you got to be able to give them that freedom to where they're not going to hurt your feelings. If you, if they tell you that, you know, your, your, your food don't taste so good, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's tricky, but I love, I love the way you do it. That's why I was like, I'm very fascinated with the way that you, 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 you're like, you're taking a beat on these things. You're like, Oh, I see you're not doing well. It's not, I'm not trying to push you through school. You're not good. Take a beat. Still not good. Come back, come back in a day. You know, like, like I, uh, I love that kind of concept. What, what, how, like, what has been your realization or how did you realize that like you need this amount of input from the, the end, the, from the, from the child or the student, like 
where did you get this idea? Where did you get this mindset to come up with that kind of thing? Um, honestly, having really bad administration when I was a teacher. Um, there is there Not is no like better you. way <laughs> to learn. You know, when you I had a I have had principals in the past who um, a lot of times are scared of what a parent's perspective is. And so when it comes to disciplining a kid, they don't want to do it, you know, but then I'm the teacher who works for you. And I'm like, I need support. And so I really just started trying things in my own classroom to hold students accountable. So I would never have to send them to a principal. And that's really where it started. I was like, I have to figure out how to get, get into their minds and hold them accountable so that I don't have to send them to a principal or a dean that I know is not going to support me. Right. Mm. And so I really in the classroom, which trying so many different things. I mean, I, I was an English teacher. And so I would have a student who would cuss all the time. I cannot take cussing in the classroom. You know, it's a big rule. And so we started a post account and every single day he would write, we'd write down, you know, like a little stickies of how often he would cuss, you know? And at first it was like a joke and he was like, whatever, miss. And I was like, if you can get down to 10 times compared to the 32, then we would get a pizza party, right? And so it became a thing where he just started, oh, miss, you see, I cussed only 22 times. I'm like, great, you need to get down to 20, right? And so um, it became a thing. I had another student who really couldn't focus and I stopped and realized that like, hey, he's been in school for, four, for five hours. Like he can't focus because he's bored out of his mind and he's tired of sitting down. And so I really started taking the back of my classroom and leaving it as an open space. So if students needed to stand up as compared to like getting in trouble for being up, then they could do that. And so that was my way of working with them. And then for other students, you know, if you need to use the restroom, instead of like interrupting me, we just did like this, you know, restroom um, and sign mm -hmm. language. I, I really started to ask kids, okay, what can we do? And really it starts from like building the rules, like, hey, what do you guys think our rules should be in class? You know, and that was at the beginning of my school year. Um, and really just to get that buy-in from them and then really just cultivating different ideas to not get them in trouble, but to also make sure that they kind of understand this is an expectation, right? Mm. Um, and it just got to the point where kids, you know, if they're in my classroom, if somebody else was cussing, they would say, hey, like, we don't talk like that in here. And, you know, it was it's funny. And then when I ended up becoming a principal, taking those same ideas, right? Of like, how do we get students involved? What, is, what are things that happen? And what are different ways that we could respond to them as teachers and a principal and a dean? And we got a leadership team and they told us like, miss, this is, I mean, they, if you listen to kids, they will tell you what they do, right? Like so-and-so uses their makeup. This is a gang sign. Like they would inform us. Um, and so we were like, well, what are some of the ways we can prevent that from happening? Or how can we make you feel safe? And they really would come up with ideas and we would just implement them. Um, and again, going to the experts, like they were my experts, you know, and um, really trial and error. I think sometimes as a leader, you have to be okay with like a mistake or an error is going to happen and that's okay. Um, and it took me a while <laughs> to get to that because <laughs> I like, I'm very A-type. So I was like, oh, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to look bad, but you have to go through those mistakes to figure out how to improve, right? Mm -hmm. And so really, um, you know, when I was a principal and kids would be sent out, in my first few years, I was like, no, I'm talking, you know, and it became this power dynamic. And so it was like, well, how do I get us to a place where they know I'm not against them when they come into my office? And so a kid was like, one time, miss, can I take a break? 
I said, sure. And the, the way that they came back was like a million times better. And so really that's what I started instituting of like, you know what, I'm never going to force a conversation again until a, a child is ready. And if they're not ready within an hour, then we do send them home, right? Like we try to get a case manager involved. We try to get a therapist involved. If they don't want to talk to any of those people, then yes, they get sent home. But now, yeah, we do allow for students to have that time to, to kind of have a breather before we, we have a consequence conversation. And so really, I guess I just, I went to the experts, I went to the students and like, what works? And really just trying to implement that. <laughs> I, uh, I commend your bravery uh, on the first one. Not uh, most teachers or people that are in the area of power um, are willing to basically do, you know, improv jazz, cultural jazz with the kids and be like, what do you think will work? And that belief in the people and then willing to like institute things that are non-intuitive, like, you know, like backroom class standing up, looking to see the way the, the wind blows and go, oh, you need to sometimes stand up. All right, you stand up. Oh, you need a break? Oh, you need a break. Okay. And so it's very imp improv, like, and a lot of times people are very rigid when they're leading things because it's what works, right? Uh, but then you got, in a, you got in a mechanistic pattern of like, instead of being comfortable with the power and the authority in that path, path, you got comfortable with constantly asking and iterating and changing and growing the dynamics so that, so you're, and you were just kept following the same beaded line of what are they saying? What works? What are they saying? What works? And that, that seems to be the through line, which is, it's really, really cool. It's not, it's not easy and it's, and, it, and it's not going to work all the time. It's not, it's none of those things, but it's one of those, it's those micro iterations of growth that you're moving along the path that a group collective is much more powerful than an individual mindset. You know, uh, uh, I know what's best going that direction versus what, what do they naturally do? And then how do I get them to give me the feedback so that we can, we can move through a system, which I think is really, really powerful. Um, one one last question as we start to wrap this thing up here is like what's your holy grail what's the thing you're looking to do all this thing if you're you know you're like what would if when you could stop and look back and like i did it what is that what is that holy grail to you um you know i've been having these conversations in the midst of what we're experiencing right now in the world and um you're in new orleans so this this will definitely come full circle. I um, I was raised by my mom and my dad and my grandparents. My grandparents were very important in my life. And all my grandparents are from the South. Um, and so growing up, they would tell us stories about like the stuff they went through. Um, you know, my grandfather was in World War um, II and, you know, just the racism that he experienced, you know, brilliant man, you know, and you know, he had to teach himself how to read and how to write. And because his grandparents didn't really know because their grandparents were slaves and they weren't allowed to, you know? And so there was this fear behind it. And I, I have pushed myself to go to school and get my doctorate because, you know, my father didn't always get to do that. You know, he was always taking care of younger siblings. And so a lot of who I am and what I do is always for my ancestors. And it wasn't until I went to the Whitney plan plantation, which is actually in Louisiana. So if you, I know everything's closed right now because of COVID. Um, but I will tell you, I've been to the Whitney plantation. Every time I go to New Orleans, um, it is like a very important stop for me because I believe in to, to be able to go on a plantation and it's one of the, the only fully restored plantations. 
to step on that land where they tell you the stories of slaves that were on that land and what they experienced and to be a black educated woman it's not lost on me that those are all privileges and so i continuously serve as a servant to my students but also to pay homage to so many of my ancestors who were not able to do these things to mm. read to write is not something that they were allowed to do. And so for me, education is so important. Now we're allowed to do these things, but then we still have people who are marginalized and still don't get to experience those things. And so I think for me, it's always that my job and what I wanna leave behind, my holy grail, I guess my legacy is to always be a servant who has helped other people get access. You know, If it weren't for my father and my mother, if it weren't for my grandparents, who instilled and invested so much in me, I would never be the person I am today. And so I think that my job and what I, I, I never wanna be like, I don't even like applause. <laughs> like, I don't like attention. You know, all my degrees are with my parents. They're not with me because it's not mine. You know, it's theirs. They, they did so much for me. So I think that, you know, I, I always think back to Whitney Plantation. I always think back to my grandparents. And that's when it's always reminded to me that my job is to be a servant, um, mm. but to allow other people access, to give them the opportunities that, you know, so many people have been, it's been taken from them. And so really, I feel like that's always my work, my life's work. That's, that's beautiful. A, a, a servant building a sanctuary. It's one of those things that you're, you're granting access to, to people that don't have that access and you're kind of like passing that torch along of opportunity, which is really, uh, you know, it's beautiful. So um, I thought I heard something in passing about Whitney Plantation, um, but now that you said it, I will, I will, I will, I will, I don't know if they're doing tours. I don't, I mean, like you don't go small group tours anyway, but it's one of the most powerful um, experiences I've ever had. And we went like, in the summertime, the first time we ever went, and it was hot, and we were like complaining, you know, about sweating. And it was like, yeah. then when you when you go to the tour, you're like, am I really sitting here complaining about this right now? Like, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, Prep, uh, perspective is so important in the situations, right? Yeah, yeah. Right, 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 right. But it's like a it's like an hour and a half tour, and you walk the whole time, yeah. and they take you through so many different stops, and I, you know, I won't give away everything because I feel like you do have to really experience yeah. it, but. Um, it is, it is so incredibly powerful. It's amazing how like, there's these different like totems or these experiences that you go to that kind of reset your place in this world. And it reminds you, oh, that's right. I'm only here for that long. I'm very lucky to be here. And I'm fortunate for all these blessings that I've had and the privileges that I have to, to do this. It's such a powerful thing to reset. Otherwise, you can get lost in the race and then get really mad because you didn't get that special sauce in your super taco and life is awful and all that stuff. So <laughs> it's a, it's a, a wonderful, beautiful thing that you're doing. Um, and I want to honor you for it. I love, I love all the stuff you're doing. I'm all about it. I think this is wonderful. Um, and so if people want to get a hold of you, if they want to reach out to you, learn more about what you're doing or support you in your cause, how does somebody find you? Um, there's a lot of ways to find me. No, I am on Instagram. Um, mm. I have um, two different Instagrams. One is for my nonprofit, which is Haven's mm. House. And that's Haven's House YS on um, Instagram. And then I also have a book I'm writing about um, my experience of meeting my birth parents. Mm. Um, and really just to give a, 
like advice to people about what do you, what happens when you have a reunification? Um, and that's called When a Baney Met Betty. Betty's my biological name. So that's mm -hmm. also on Instagram as well. So it's two different Instagrams and you're writing the book right now. So it's not available just yet, but it, it will be nope. available soon. Yep, next year. Oh, look at that flag in the sand. That's yes. powerful. That's powerful. <laughs> well, Baby, this has been beautiful. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you taking the time for this. And I love that all you do. And I, and, uh, I look forward to talking to you soon. Okay, great. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Have a beautiful day. I'll talk to you soon. Thank Bye. you too. Bye. Bye now. Thank you for listening to the Heroes of Reality podcast. Check out heroesofreality.com for more episodes. While you're there, you can also take the Heroes quiz to find out what kind of hero you are. Or if you have a great story and want to be on the podcast, tell us why your hero's journey will inspire others. Thank you for listening. See you on the other side.